In this episode of Ask Paul Kirtley, we're going to talk about lanyard holes, we're going to talk about dromedary bags, we're going to talk about my preferred method of sleeping, hammock or on the ground. We're going to talk about tinder boxes for scouts and NGB awards for bushcraft, should there be one. Welcome to this episode of Ask Paul Kirtley. It's episode 10. I can't believe we've made it to 10 episodes already. Thanks for your support. Thanks for watching. Thanks for watching this episode and certainly double thanks if you've watched all the episodes that precede it. If you haven't, go back and double check. There's loads of good information. Lots of people have been asking some really great questions and um, hopefully I've been giving some useful answers as well. Certainly the feedback suggests that the answers I'm giving are helpful to people and um, I'm not getting so many duplicate questions now in terms of email questions and Twitter questions so clearly people are watching them and getting the information they need from the videos in a timely fashion rather than waiting for me to reply to an email. Um, it might take me some time to reply to if I, if I get around to it at all. My, my email box never seems to get any smaller so I think this is working for everyone. So thanks for your support. Thanks for asking the questions. Keep the questions coming. Twitter, Instagram, SpeakPipe via my blog and emails as well. Try and keep them quite short and concise. I can get through more of them. Um, you can always come back and ask other questions at other points in time. Um, you know, I'm happy. You don't have to just ask one question once forever. Um, you can come back and, and ask various questions in future as they occur to you as well. And I know there's a few lurkers out there. There's a few people who've not commented or have uh, not to ask me a question yet. Um, could you at least say hello? Go to the comments below this video, whether it's uh, on my blog that you're watching this or um, on YouTube. Uh, I forgot the name of YouTube there for a second. If it's on YouTube, comments there as well. And if you're listening to this as a podcast, maybe head over to my blog. Check out the show notes anyway. They're all there on my blog, as they always are. Drop me a little line there to let me know. Um, what's interesting for me to know is where are you listening to the podcast? Um, at the moment, it's on SoundCloud. I'm looking to get it onto iTunes and various other places. By the time you're listening to this, it will be on several platforms likely. Let me know where you're listening to this. And if you're not hearing it where you'd like to hear it, let me know where you'd like to hear it, what platform you'd like to hear it on. Go over to my blog, paulkirtley.co.uk. Look for episode 10 of Ask Paul Kirtley drop me a quick line there, let me know where you'd like to listen to the podcast version of this. Anyway, without further ado, let's jump into the questions. And again, I'm going to try and answer a good few email questions here because I've neglected those. As I said in the previous episode, I'm trying to get through these. This first email question is from Paul Fibben. Thanks for the question, Paul. Um, he says, I've only recently become aware of your blogs. In fact, since you did the podcast with Chris Townsend, I too was fortunate enough to spend a weekend with him and Terry Abraham back in winter 2013. What a cracking and knowledgeable guy he is. Indeed he is. Uh, and uh, I would recommend anybody who's not listened to that podcast with Chris Townsend that has any interest in backpacking or camping or hiking to go and listen to that. I'll put the link in the show notes on my blog, not under YouTube, on my blog, podcurtly.co.uk, that's where the 
that's where the comments and the uh, the show notes are and the links. Um, so anyway, uh, Paul's question is, nearly all bushcraft knives have holes for lanyards, including my Bailey knife. I hear many views for and against using a short lanyard. My question is, in your opinion, are they safe in use or not? Um, at the end of the day, Paul, it depends what you're doing with them. Um, I know there's a second part of your question here and I will, I will come back to that, but the main part really I think is this one. It depends what you're doing with them. Um, you know, lots of things with a knife can be made safe or unsafe depending exactly what you do with them. Um, I have to say I've rarely, if ever, felt the need to have a lanyard on any bushcraft knife that I own or any knife that I use for general um, campcraft and bushcraft purposes, uh, woodcraft and carving. Um, most of the knives that I've had are woodlaw knives, woodlaw instructor knife, um, lighter weight knives um, such as the one that I've got from Bushblade, um, the PK1 knives from Raven Armoury, they've all had lanyard holes in them. My, my knife design has lanyard holes in them, not because I necessarily really use one, but I know other people like to use them. And it's something that is easy or relatively easy to put on there just in case people want to use them. Um, I know there are various methods of trying to do reinforced grips or securing it to your hand and that can work for some people particularly if they've got weak, uh, weak hands but personally I don't feel that I need that extra support. Um, I've more felt the need to put a lanyard on an axe sometimes but that's only in very very specific circumstances and that's where if I dropped the axe and it's typically in snow and icy conditions or near water if I dropped the axe I would lose it and um, that it would typically go into water or it would go off the side of something where I wouldn't be able to retrieve it. There's a real risk when you put a, a lanyard on, a, on an axe and if you let go of it, you've then got a three-dimensional pendulum with a very sharp edge on it swinging around on the end of your arm that can come up towards your elbow, go down towards your knee, depending on the length of the, the axe as well. That's extremely unpleasant if it comes into contact with you. Um, most circumstances, it's much better to let the thing drop to the ground. And I would say most circumstances with a knife, it's better to let it drop than it is to have it swinging around on your wrist. That's my personal view. I don't feel I need a lanyard for grip strength or to reinforce any, any hold on the knife. And I don't generally feel um, that I'm ever really using a knife in a situation where I might uh, drop it. Clearly with survival knives, they've, they've got holes in them for making them into spears and all sorts of um, different ideas like that. I'm not talking about that sort of thing. I'm just talking about a hole through the top of the handle um, to add a little lanyard on. Most of the time, personally, I find this superfluous and I was having a similar discussion with somebody else recently who was of the same opinion. They use a knife a lot, they never use a lanyard hole. That's my view, other people may have different views and that's fine. Just gonna wait for that plane to go over. And the second part of your question there Paul it's a, a quick one really and um, being into lightweight hill walking and bushcraft I have the same lightweight sill nylon tarp you do 
and that's the uh, integral designs sil, sil nylon tarp which is a very good little tarp it's similar size to the Australian hoochies and about a quarter of the weight um, when you set this tarp up on your video I'll put the link in the show notes for those of you that want to see that video um, I noticed maybe wrongly you didn't use a single tree to tree paracord but two fixed to each end of the tarp is there a reason for this keep up the good work Paul loving your stuff Thank you, Paul. Um, glad you appreciate the shows, and I hope you've appreciated the shows in between you asking that question and <laughs> me answering it. Um, sorry, it's taken me a while to get around to it. Um, yeah, the, it's a lightweight tarp. Um, the reason I'm carrying it is to minimize weight, um, and it might be slightly anal, but a cord from the tarp to the tree and from the tarp to the tree is lighter than a cord all the way along. It doesn't have loops along the top, my model doesn't anyway, um, to hang it from. So there's no real advantage, there's one advantage, but there's no massive strength advantage um, to having it strung underneath a cord. Um, the one advantage to having it on a cord, even with just two end fastenings, is that you can slide it backwards and forwards a little bit to to position it where you like between two trees. But frankly, I can do that just by tying the knots in slightly different places and, and adjusting it if I need to. Um, so it saves me a bit of weight. Um, it saves me a little bit of hassle in terms of entanglement because I can just um, I, I can just hank up the cord on each end of the tarp and leave that hanging. I don't have to sort of wrap the cord around the tarp once I've finished. So it's, it's, it's speed and convenience to get it back in the stuff sack, lose a little bit of weight. And also just incidentally, I noticed you say paracord. I don't use paracord for, my, for that tarp. I use two mil cord that's a lot thinner. It's still way strong enough and it just again drops the weight. Remember that whole setup, as you well know, is about being lightweight. So I try and just shave those, shave those things off where I can. And uh, you know, if anything, you can have slightly longer um, guy lines if you want to, so you've got a bit more flexibility without increasing the weight or the bulk of the tarp. So that's the reason why, just you don't need it and, uh, and it just saves a tiny little bit of weight. Okay, next question. So I've got two questions here. I remember reading through these before. Two that are very, very similar. Um, so I'll answer them together, guys, if that's all right. First one is from Michael Turner, and he asks, which sleeping method do you prefer on the ground or under a tarp? Uh, sorry, I read that wrong. Which sleeping method do you prefer on the ground under a tarp or in a hammock with a proper top quilt, under quilt, and also why? So that's a question from Michael Turner. And also I had a question from Stuart Fisher, who said, um, which would be the most comfortable, sleeping on the ground under a tarp or sleeping in a hammock under a tarp and why? Really enjoy your blog with great insights. Keep up the great work, Stuart. Well, thank you guys. Um, thanks for the question. Um, the answer really is to, to the bit about which one's more comfortable, that's a subjective question. Uh, answer it's a subjective thing it depends on you i know some people who swear by hammocks i know some people who swear by sleeping on the ground and really don't like hammocks um, and some people who don't mind either way um, some people say they prefer sleeping in a hammock in the summer um, because it's cooler other people say they prefer uh, winter hammocking um, 
it, so there's clearly a, an element of personal preference there. So I think you can't say emphatically and objectively that this is one way is better than another um, for all people in terms of comfort anyway, because we're all built differently. Um, personally, when I'm in the UK and when I'm in places where there are not biting insects or snakes or anything I need to worry about on the ground, I'm very happy being on the ground. To me, it's a less fussy way of sleeping out. Um, I find hammocks somewhat irritating to get into and out of. I find the paraphernalia overcomplicated in some circumstances. And so I, I'm happy with a tarp, a bivy bag, a sleeping mat and a sleeping bag. I'm happy with that. And if I'm in a situation where there might be lots of biting insects, in the UK or even in Canada for that matter, I may just use a tent um, instead. Even if it just means I'm, you know, in really hot conditions, I might just use the tent inner um, as, a, as effectively as a bug, as a bug net. It's it's about weight and practicality at the end of the day and what's quick to set up. You know, I know some people who spend an hour setting their hammock set up. You know, when I'm making a journey, I don't have that time. You know, we've just come back relatively recently from a canoe trip in Canada, and you just don't, you know, you're paddling all day, um, you have a quick lunch on the river, you get to the end of the day, you've got to get camp set up, you've got to get communal tarps set up, you get your own personal camp set up. I don't want stuff that's a faff. I want a tent that'll go up quickly or a tarp set up that'll go up quickly and that's it, that's me done, I can rest then. That's the whole point, remember, about having these things. Having a good sleeping arrangement, the ultimate point of them is that you get good rest. And if you're spending an hour setting the thing up, that's an hour you could be sleeping in another system that spends like you know, five minutes to put up. So you, you've got to take a holistic view as far as I'm concerned. So I don't just take a comfort view, um, I take a view of practicality as well. So a lot of the time I'm happy on the ground. Um, equally, I tend to use, when I'm working on courses and I'm relatively fixed, um, I'm not sort of traveling fast and light. I'll take a slightly bigger tarp. I use a Hilleberg XP10 tarp, which I've had for seven or eight years, really good tarp, a um, bit heavier than the sill nylon tarps. I'd probably get a similar size sill nylon one these days if I was in the market. Um, Alpkit do a really good range of um, sill nylon tarps. I only know the really, really big one um, that we use for group uh, tarps on trips. I don't know the smaller ones. Some of my colleagues have got the smaller ones, but I don't have personal experience, but they, they rate them. Um, and they're a similar size to my Hilleberg. So that's somewhere I'd be looking at now if I was in that market. And I like that because I can get, you know, I might be working on several courses week after week after week. I can have a hold all with some spare clothes in there that I wouldn't have on a wilderness trip because there's too much weight, but I want to be presentable for, for, for customers and for, for students, um, you know, coming in on a new course. I might have more spare clothes. I might have some reading material. I might have course materials, you know, handouts i can get organized underneath a larger tarp and i like to kind of do that all on the ground um i like to be able to lie in bed at night and read and read through papers and read through notes for courses and those sorts of things to me i just like to get a good dry space and be on the ground underneath that but as i say that's in places where there are no snakes and problematic insects and what have you so if i'm in a tropical area i'll be in a hammock i don't want to be on the ground um, where there are things that are going to cause me cause me trouble if i'm in canada in in mosquito season 
I will probably use a tent, to be honest with you. And if we need a communal space, you can get larger communal bug nets to sit to sit inside. Um, I don't tend to do the, the, the tarp and the hammock with the bug net around it in that environment, because again, it doesn't really give you a lot of space. Um, it gives you a good place to sleep, um, but it doesn't give you a lot of space. I prefer to have a tent, even if it means I have all the flaps open in summer to get some breeze through it, or even just use the tent inner to, to provide a, a bug-free zone. That's what I prefer. And again, it's quite light and it's quick to set up as well. Um, a lot of campsites where I paddle in Canada in the Canadian Shield when I go canoeing, um, some sites have got great places to have a hammock. You know, you could have a hammock there right on the edge of the river or, or whatnot, but other places are quite open, they're quite rocky. You know, there might be a rocky promontory that gets a bit of breeze so that they're bug free. There's not really anywhere, anywhere to put a hammock up there, or one of you might get a hammock up and the rest of the group might not. So I find tents more flexible for that. Um, and then in terms of comfort, personally, um, I don't like sleeping in a kind of banana shape, even if it's slightly banana shape, it doesn't do my back any good. I find I get a stiff lower back. It's the same with um, soft mattresses. If I sleep on an overly soft mattress, I start to get a stiff back and I have to do a lot of stretching in the mornings, which I can do if I'm in a hotel room or a B&B or something, but it's harder to do if you're on a trip. Um, you don't necessarily have the time uh, before you have to move on. So I, again, if I can, I like to sleep on, on the flat. Um, what I did do recently in Canada though, is I've experimented with one of these X-bed um, downfill mats, not because of the insulation, but just because it provides a bit more cushioning. Because again, Canadian Shield, hard rock, um, not a lot of cushioning. Whereas here in the UK, sleeping on the ground, yes, it's, it's earth, but it's, there's a bit of give to it. There's a bit of moss, there's a bit of, um, you know foliage on the grounds a bit of leaf litter it's quite comfortable um to lie on as it is it's not it's not as unforgiving as rock so i'll just use a thin thermarest here um and that's fine and again it's about bulk and weight um and i like a sleeping bag a good sleeping bag um if i'm traveling i'll use a down bag if i'm more static i'll use a synthetic bag um again that's down to weight and bulk and ease of cleaning um, it's easier to clean synthetic bags. So that's quite a ramble through, but generally I like sleeping on the ground because I like a hard flat surface, unless I have to be up off the ground to be away from things that are gonna cause me problems. Um, if there are uh, no real problems with biting insects, I'd like to have a tarp and I like to be open. I like to have the fresh air. I like a dry space underneath. And if there's issues with biting insects, I like to tend to like to use a tent. Um, and those are my preferences, but that's a personal thing. I'm not being prescriptive, I'm not being dogmatic. I think you have to experiment. I spend hundreds of nights sleeping outside a year in different places from the Arctic North, in heated tents, under tarps, in tents, um, out under the stars, you know, in hammocks. You know, there is no one way that I do all the time. But as I say, if I have a preference, I just like a hard flat surface. That seems to do me absolutely fine. Hopefully that answers your question. I'm not sure it does, but it tells you what I like doing anyway. All right, hopefully this is a quick, quick answer because it's quite a quick question. Uh, this is from Thomas. And Thomas asks, um, may I ask, what size MSR dromedary you managed to fit empty into the 12 centimeter billy can? 
Thank you, best regards, Thomas. So I think this is a reference to one of my videos where I talk about what I carry, a standard kit that I put into my rucksack. Um, actually, there's an article on my blog, um, which is quite a few years old now, but it's still relevant. I'll link to it in the show notes. And also I talked about, in a video, I talked about how to pack all of that into a rucksack because people couldn't believe I could get all of that into a rucksack. So I showed how I do that. And inside a billy can, I take a dromedary for storing water as a reservoir in camp. And typically the size that fits into that is a two litre or a four litre. You can just about squeeze a four litre in, two litre or four litre. Six litres a bit too big to go in. Um, we use six to 10 litres for group uh, dromedaries on trips, on a canoe trip, for example. Got an MSR um, flow uh, gravity filter and we'll put a dromedary on the bottom, but personal use, two or maybe a four litre fits in there fine, just to get a bit of extra water storage in camp. And then you can crumple it down, put it in the billy can, uh, put a collapsible bowl in there as well, put the lid on, put it in a stuff sack, in, into your rucksack, and you've got everything you need for cooking and washing and water storage there ready to go. Hopefully that answers the question, Thomas. Okay, this question is from Joshua, Joshua Denton. He asks, hey Paul, I'm thinking of making tinder boxes with the Explorer Scouts uh, out of tobacco tins. So far, I'm thinking of making char cloth for it, petroleum cotton balls, and sachets of potassium permanganate and sugar, though I'm yet to try this myself. Also, maybe a buddy burner or two and a fire flash. Any other suggestions or advice? Um, yes, yes, Joshua. Um, First off, I would be a little bit wary of using chemicals unless it's in a very controlled way, with, particularly with kids. Um, you want to be doing it outside. The fumes that potassium permanganate give off when it's um, oxidizing, particularly when it's mixed with, with uh, glycerine or glycol or sugar, um, is toxic. And so you don't want to be doing that indoors. You don't want the kids inhaling it. Um, also, you want to make sure that those things are kept separate. So you need to store them quite carefully um, because if they mix in that tinderbox, you're going to have a problem, particularly if it's packed in somebody's pack or even in a cupboard at the scout hut or wherever you're keeping them. So you just need to be a little bit careful with that. Clearly, you don't want that stuff to be mixed on a child's skin either because that could cause a chemical burn. Um, well, it's not actually a chemical burn. The reaction between the two will cause a, you know, a, a, a thermal burn, if you like, um, because it's an exothermic reaction. So you do need to be a little bit careful about that. I think maybe better, the better thing to do with, with that, um, Joshua, is um, get some glycerine from your cake, cake uh, stall, uh, or your cake aisle, rather, in the supermarket. Get some potassium permanganate, um, get some old cloth, um, put some potassium permanganate crystals in there, drop some of the glycerine in, or the, or the uh, yeah, glycerine normally, um, crunch that up, turn it up, twist it into a little ball, put it down and go upwind of it and it should start to smolder, it will burst into flame and it may even be like a little small explosion and that will, that will show them the an example of a chemical reaction. You can link that with their chemistry lessons as well, if you like, at school, it's an exothermic reaction, etc., etc., etc. 
Potassium permanganate is relatively difficult to get hold of these days because you can also use it in bomb making and there's a bit more strict control over it. You can still get it from some chemists, you can still get it online, but it's not as easy to get hold of as it once was. And I would just be a little, I would control it more, I would control it centrally if you're doing it with, with you know, it's explorers, so they'll be a bit more responsible than some of the younger kids. Um, so that's, that's one thing. Um, I think petroleum jelly and you know so vaseline and um, cotton balls it's a good fallback doesn't really teach you a lot about fire lighting frankly because you know anybody can throw a spark in the general direction of a of a uh, vaseline soaked cotton wool ball and get it to light that's the whole point of them they're very reliable but it doesn't really teach you a lot about you know the the, the subtleties of fire lighting but it's a good place to start and it if i think if you teach it as a real fallback you know it's almost like an emergency fire lighter then that's a really good thing for them to know about because you know there's no point just teaching people really hard methods of fire lighting all the time because there are some methods that are really easy um, and it doesn't make them less worthy it just you need to understand uh, you know you're not always going to have cotton balls and glycerine and and, and vaseline sorry um, you know you might need to learn how to use birch bark or take some dried grass and buff it up into into a tinder bundle but you can do that with a char cloth you know if you've got char cloth you, you can drop a spark onto that but it's still not going to burst into flame you're not going to be able to light a bundle of twigs with it you're going to have to have some other medium so i think char cloth's a good one you can show them how to make char cloth um, and then you can actually divvy that up they can put it into their tins you can show them how to drop a spark onto it um, and then you're going to have to take that smoldering ember that you'll get and turn that into flame as well so there's quite a lot of learning there which is a good um, it's a good step-wise sequence there to some of the skills that they might need for friction fire lighting if they ever do that. So that's a good thing to have. It's also actually, as long as you keep the char cloth quite dry, a very, very reliable method of fire lighting. Um, a lot more reliable than, than some of the more modern methods actually. Um, so that's, that's a good methodology to learn. You could then also experiment with charring some other natural materials because cotton cloth or silk or whatever you're using um, all the cloths that work with char to make char cloth are natural fibers so you could actually start experimenting with natural fibers that you found you know, maybe um, some rose bay willow herb seeds or thistle down or um, some downy seed heads from uh, cat cattails you could try charring them drying them and then you know charring them snuffing them out keeping them dry and then dropping a spark on them at a later date so you can start that as a you know you can sort of create a baseline if you like and then use that as a starting point for teaching them other things as well if you want but going back to what you said do try yourself first with all of these things make sure you're confident that you can get them to work yourself you know the quantities required you know the methodology required to do it consistently um, you know the variability that can occur um, you know different techniques that can be used with the same materials so that you've got a fully rounded set of skills that you can deliver to those explorers as well and they'll have a great time with it but also teach them about being responsible with fire as well it's very easy to get excited about fire and then uh, and then not teach the the response <laughs> you create a bunch of arsonists basically a pyromaniacs um, it's, it's important to teach them about being responsible as well as I'm sure you know, don't, don't, don't take that as a patronising comment. So, right, good. We've got a, we can finish with a quick speak pipe question. 
which I've downloaded to my phone. Here we go. Hi Paul, Mark here from the Isle of Arne on the bonny west coast of Scotland. Um, in some parts of outdoor education you need qualifications, summer ML, winter ML, single pitch, kayaking etc. Uh, what are your thoughts in introducing or standardising bushcraft qualifications to, to a similar level? And keep up the good work, we'll enjoy your Ask Paul Cutley broadcasts. Cheers. That's a very interesting question, Mark, and I'll probably open a can of worms up if I say anything about this, but it does need discussing from time to time. And typically this tends to be discussed amongst instructors, it tends to be um, discussed amongst industry professionals or people who are already well established in the industry, and also people who are coming into the industry, the people ask about what qualifications can I do to teach bushcraft or put me in a position to teach bushcraft. They might even be being asked by a school or a local authority to provide some sort of um, paperwork to show that they're qualified um, and responsible to teach the things that they're, they're wanting to teach. And so I think there are some reasons along those lines why some sort of certification or NGB award might be useful just because um, people can then demonstrate that um, they're of a certain level of competency um, to other official bodies. Um, I think it might also be a good idea in terms of showing other parts of the outdoor industry that we are legitimate as a discipline and as a field of study, as a, an area of recreation, as an area of uh, professional outdoor training, because I often meet other instructors who are um, canoe coaches or mountaineering instructors, and they kind of turn their nose up, not all of them, but some of them, and I'm being honest here, they kind of turn their nose up at bushcraft and they kind of joke about, oh yeah, you, you're whittling some spoons and lighting some fires. Um, it just shows their level of ignorance, frankly. Um, it's a bit like me saying, oh yeah, you're gonna coil a rope and you know, stick a few pitons in today. You know, it, it's, it's just kind of doesn't show any interest or, um, or, or uh, knowledge about the, the, the breadth of what we teach. But also we've got a responsibility as a, as a group of people who teach bushcraft to make sure that other people do know. And I think there's a lot of bushcraft being taught at a low level that is just, half-arsed spoon carving and poor fire lighting skills um, and and you know heating marshmallows over a fire um, that's actually very 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 far removed from what I see as um, as bushcraft it, it, it's it's kind of a small corner it's a small dark corner of it if you like but uh, the level of skill is low the level of execution is low um, the level of aspiration in terms of um, gaining more knowledge is quite low. Um, I think some people are involved in bushcraft instruction just to try and cash in. Um, certainly some events companies, some outdoor centres, they see it as trendy um, and it's, it's not being taught particularly well. Um, I think there are reasons why there maybe needs to be a slightly higher hurdle um, to, for people to demonstrate some competency because it's not that I think people's lives are at risk by having, you know, being taught how to light fires poorly generally although in the extremists it might be um, but it's just because it puts the rest of us who strive for the highest standards um, at a disadvantage it, it puts us in the same boat as people who are teaching things badly um, or really not taking the time 
and I'm not pointing this at anybody in particular, I just, I've seen a lot of it over the years. Um, you know, some people don't know what they don't know. Um, and I think having some sort of standard would at least show them these are the basic things that you need to know. And clearly there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of um, learning to be had above that. And I think one of the problems with bushcraft is it's hard to get your arms around it. You know, what do we include within the umbrella of bushcraft? Um, you know, there's so many different facets and that's one of the attractions. Um, you know, it's possible that you might have to have a sort of multifaceted um, uh, or multi-level uh, set of NGB awards. I don't think you could have one standardised NGB award like the ML that would cover everything that would ever be taught under bushcraft. But then again, within mountain craft, and I'm an ML, um, I've got my summer ML, I don't have my winter ML, I'd like to do that at some point. Um, but you know, I work with people like Ray Goodwin, who's MIC, and there are different levels that you can go at in terms of your mountaineering and your hill walking um, and your climbing as well. You mentioned SPA and then that sort of blends in with the mountaineering qualification later on. You know, you can go to be an international mountain guide, but then you need to have skiing um, abilities to, in there as well. So you can take those things in lots of different directions and also, you know, to quite, you know, really very high levels. I think there's scope over time for doing that within bushcraft instruction. I think there's resistance to it because in the past it's been seen as a somewhat organic skill set um, you know that some of it comes from native um, people some of it comes from anthropology some of it comes from frontiersmen then you've got all the wild food and foraging and then you've got other skills which overlap with other disciplines like navigation and natural navigation and so there's a lot to go at and I think the initial question is what are we going to include and I think we need to look at what's being taught generally what do people want to be taught um, what is being taught to young people, what's being taught in schools and outdoor centres, what's being taught by people whose main job is not uh, bushcraft, but it's working commercially viably for them. And then we need to set a standard around that kind of core set of uh, skills and have some sort of minimum competency level, just as there is in mountain mountain um, leadership. You know, for all those people that say you couldn't do it in, 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 in core bushcraft skills, it's as ridiculous as saying you can't do it with taking people into the hills because that, you know, that's so variable and it could be a different mountain and a different area. You just need to have people with enough experience and you just need to test the right things. Um, and I don't think to teach kids um, how to light fires and make shelters and cook marshmallows over the fire that you need to be teaching at the same level as maybe somebody who's teaching um, skills for people doing wilderness expeditions but you still need to have some minimal standard um, of of teaching is is my view because at the moment anybody anybody watching this video tomorrow can set themselves up as a bushcraft instructor they can put a website up they can start a limited company and say that they're a bushcraft school and they can have no experience whatsoever they could have just done a course with me for a weekend or with somebody else for a weekend and they decide they want to go and teach what they've learned um, I don't think that's good enough in the long term. I don't think it does the bushcraft industry any, any services because you get a lot of low level stuff being taught. I think there should be some, some you know, and it sounds like jobs for the boys, but it's not at all. I think there should be some hoops for people to jump through to show that they're competent because, you know, I know it works. I've, I've done it for other bushcraft companies when I work for them and I've done it for my own bushcraft company. I have an internal training scheme um, that people are tested in terms of their technical knowledge in their um, actual practical ability 
and also their ability to teach. And I think those three things need to be assessed so that people not only can demonstrate that they can do it, but it actually raises their game. And I think as an industry, I think ultimately that's the important thing. Uh, you know, if we're to stop being the joke of you know the outdoor industry the people the weird people who wear green and smell of wood smoke and whittle spoons um we need to demonstrate that we're a much more professional bunch than generally we demonstrate that we are at the moment you know i try and do that i know other people like ray mears try and do that there are other people like john Ryder and um uh, and ben and lisa at wood smoke and a few others that you know, joe o'leary that are really striving to be as good as they can be and to be as professional as they can be in everything that they that they, that they do but i don't think it's an industry-wide thing um, there are other people i'm sure that i haven't mentioned and no offense meant but i think you know if you if you're in that category you'd agree with me that there's a lot of low level stuff that that is a joke, frankly. And I'm sorry if I offend people, but the standard needs to be raised. Um, and I'm saying that publicly. I'm sure I've opened a can of worms there. I'll get a lot of abuse on YouTube, but if you don't stick your head above the parapet, um, then you don't get the abuse. I think it needs to be said, um, you know, frankly, I'm a little bit tired of being laughed at by other elements of the, of the outdoors industry who frankly don't have the depth of knowledge of nature that people like myself or Ray Mears or Ben McNutt or John Ryder or Joe O'Leary have, um, but they have an opinion based on having met somebody who says they teach bushcraft who largely doesn't know what they're talking about. Um, you know, and I think we need to have a minimal standard to say that you're a bushcraft instructor, frankly. Um, and then we can go on from there. It doesn't have to be all inclusive. It doesn't have to be um, the be all and end all. Um, it doesn't mean to say you can't learn more on top of that. I just think there needs to be a minimal standard. And I think that would be a good thing. I think it would be easier for people to get insurance. I think it would be easier for schools to get good people in to teach their kids. I think it would be easier for local authorities to ratify people and I think it would get rid of some of the charlatans as well. So hopefully that answers your question, Mark. Got a bit serious there, um, but it's, it's one that we need to keep coming back to. Um, but unfortunately, I think until there's an issue, um, it may not get addressed, just as the same in mountaineering um, or mountain leadership and in water sports, often tragedies or injuries have driven, um, has, have, have driven uh, awards being put in place or amended um, you know I worry about people teaching um, how to fell trees I worry about people teaching wild foods when there's a lot of poisonous plants and fungi around that could be mis if they're not taught in the right way you know there could be a tragedy one day I hope not but you know I think we do need to have a minimal minimal standard um, there is my view at the end of the day right thank you for all the questions that is the end of this episode um, hope you've enjoyed it. Please keep the questions coming in. And uh, also, um, some of you are asked about courses. Um, most of our 2016 courses, at Frontier Bushcraft, that's my bushcraft school, most of them are on the Frontier Bushcraft website. Go to frontierbushcraft.com. You can see them all there. Click on courses. They're all there. Most of the 2016 dates are up now. And... Uh, Hope to see some of you in the woods before too long. Take care. Cheers. Mm -hmm.